This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, a tornado of activity. Toto, we're not in Woodbury anymore. The governor's been on the lam for who knows how long, dodging walkers or biters, as he calls them. And spoiler alert, lo and behold, he's turned good, like the abominable snow monster in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, for the high percentage of listeners for whom that all went right over your head, it won't stay there for long. Josh Sapan, the president and CEO of AMC Networks, will be here I'm a huge fan of AMC and its visionary chief executive, and we'll dive into the small political ecosystems of his hit shows, The Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, Hell on Wheels, Mad Men, and Low Winter Sun. And what's on the horizon for AMC? We'll see what Josh has up on his sleeve as the cable business enters the age of Aereo. Then... It's been quite a week for Polyoptics. The new Politico magazine published my magnum opus, Dukakis and the Tank, which is required reading for you all. And in this episode, we dive deeper. My collaborator on the project, Steve Silverman, will join us as we talk to former Secretary of the Navy, Gordon England, who few knew until now was the other man riding topside in the M1A1 when Governor Dukakis took his famous and fateful ride 25 years ago. And finally... A special kicker, Susan Glasser, editor of Politico magazine, will join us as we learn just what it takes to launch a new glossy title in the digital age. Her baby is hitting us every day with a kind of journalism you never saw at Politico before. Stunning debut from an all-star cast of writers, editors, multimedia producers, present company excluded. But first, a man who keeps my Samsung smart TV and my iPad burning up the kilowatts with seemingly endless stream of the best storytelling on the planet, Josh Sapan, whose AMC's networks brings us something more in the form of the flagship brand plus IFC, Sundance Channel, We, and IFC Films. Welcome, sir, to Polyoptics. Thank you very much. Great to be here. How's it going? Everything is good. Uh, third quarter earnings came out. Third quarter, $58 million profit, $395 million in revenue. Uh, analysts were uh, a little disappointed with the ad revenue, but uh, you've got so much in the pipeline. What did you tell Wall Street when you gave those numbers out? Yeah, I think uh, it was a reasonably good quarter for the company. Um, we had very strong revenue growth, particularly ad revenue growth. Uh, we talked a bit about uh, an acquisition uh, that we signed the, the deal for but have not yet closed, which is a European company called Cello Media, which will expand our channel presence uh, around the globe to uh, over 130 countries. So a big a big deal pending for us to be closed. You wrote a billion-dollar check to John Malone for Cello Media. What do you get from that? Why don't you just use other distribution mechanisms for your content? Right. Um, outside of the U.S., uh, we have been <clears throat> uh, expanding for now about five or six years. We launched first AMC in Canada, which is now widely distributed, and we launched something uh, called Sundance Global, but it's really the Sundance Channel uh, in Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Asia, and then we launched our WeTV service in Asia, and then most recently launched AMC in Latin America in a joint venture with DirecTV. So we have been doing it, as they say in the business world, organically. Uh, but this represented an opportunity to get into 300 million homes with a variety of different channels 
uh, with the flick of a switch. So it really advanced that cause very rapidly, hence the acquisition. So, Josh Sapan, there's a huge football game on tomorrow night. Tom Brady and the New England Patriots, Peyton Manning and the Denver Broncos. It'll be aired for anyone with with uh, rabbit ears free on NBC. Uh, National Football League has come out and come out in support of the broadcast networks in their uh, uh, lawsuit against uh, Aereo and and Barry Diller. What are the implications for AMC Networks about where this comes out on on the Aereo controversy? Um, it, it, it there probably are reasonably significant implications for that, and a number of other things for what we run, which are basic cable channels. Uh, that is one of the big variables in our technologically driven the part of that future. Uh, I think um, that that book is yet, of course, to be written, and we'll see where it goes. Uh, so we we mostly have our mind's eye on doing what we do day to day, and uh, with, with an eye toward what's happening in the big ecosystem of media, and we'll have to monitor it and see where see where it lands. And what you do day to day is so good. Well, thank uh, you, thank you so much. It's not me; it's actually all the people who work there. But thank you for making it me for this conversation. Uh, it will be you for this conversation, and that was not what AMC always was—a place where low acquisition fees for beloved old movies would get replays over and over again for me and my wife and my kids, and now it's the home of so much original content. How did it evolve from where it was to where it is today? Well, thanks for asking. So we, about seven years ago, uh, related to the current chapter of AMC The Channel and our company, AMC Networks, we embarked on an initiative to aggressively add original programming to AMC, which you referred to was really black and white, uncut, commercial-free classic films, which was a great part of our early existence, but I think we now consider a different chapter, and um, driven largely by what we thought were technological imperatives, meaning changing technology that brought everything to tablets, phones, on-demand, etc. We felt that um, being essentially an aggregator of film, which we were for AMC and we were for IFC and we were for the predecessor of of WeTV that was then called Romance Classics. Um, and we actually were in the early days of Bravo, which we owned before we sold it to NBC. We felt that aggregation, and I'm sure you're familiar with this uh, story in some detail, was going to become a different game and a different endeavor. Yeah. And that ultimately, to be meaningful to the world with our channels, we had to produce stuff that people wanted and liked and hopefully loved. And so we embarked on that initiative, and it was probably kicked off most notably by Mad Men. So you joined uh, AMC when it was part of the Cablevision business, I think, 1995. So you've been there uh, quite some time now. Uh, How did you come to AMC in the first place? What was your sort of creative background that that landed you with uh, the Dolans and Cablevision? Sure. Actually, I came. it was earlier than that, actually, that I landed with what was called Rainbow Media, which was operated by Cablevision and the Dolans. Uh, I had an interest, I had worked at actually at Showtime prior to uh, AMC, now it's called AMC Networks, and always been interested in radio, television, and film, and so embarked on a faltering beginning of a career in it when I left college, and uh, stumbled along the way and then got lucky and, and wound up here. So many of your shows, as we'll get <clears throat> into very shortly, have this sort of political political overtone and undertone. Did you come to developing these series with a s- 
any kind of a political sensibility? And we'll get into each one of them. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't think we really did. I think we were looking for and you probably see things in them, Josh, that some of us may not see. So I'm anxious to hear you speak about your view of of what some of these things mean and what the political ecosystems uh, are from your point of view. I'd be interested in hearing that. I think we really came to them uh, for what we thought were great stories, great drama, great craft, and great characters. And and uh, and we've been driven by, by that, um, not only on AMC, but on Sundance Channel, which you may be less familiar with. We've recently done a series called Rectify, which actually is directly political, by yeah. the way. Can't I, wait to see. You've already put it on video on demand a little bit for right, to, actually to see the, the first, atmosphere. The, the first six aired, and, and it is about a man who is let out of prison and the ambiguities surrounding his guilt or innocence and his return to community. I think you're going to like it a lot. And we have another drama for Sundance that is, I think, right up your alley called The Red Road. Right. And it actually was inspired by a story ultimately in The New Yorker. Uh, and it's set against the backdrop of actually the Ramapo Mountains, not far from New York, where mm-hmm. there is really a true collision of cultures. Pass this, them all the way, all the time on my way up to the Catskills. Right. And if you're familiar with it, it's just a great story because it is, um, there's an the indigenous, and the, uh, uh, indigenous population yeah. encroached by the sort of McMansion suburban expansion. And it's set against the backdrop of a crime that brings those two cultures to collision. It's actually a pretty, pretty interesting story. And then later, I really want to talk about Turn, because that's what I'm good, so good, excited good, about. Good. But let's start with Walking Dead, yeah. uh, which is uh, sort of <clears throat> a, a captivated my attention, never a fan of the, or never read the comic book series, just latched onto the series itself. And for, I think, first two seasons, Rick and the group are struggling on their way through making their way from their original home into Atlanta and then back to their encampment at Herschel's. And, and now they come in the last season to Woodbury, which has its own unique form of government. I want to hear a conversation between the governor and Rick Grimes. So it was his fault. He is a wild card, but he's effective. He gets the dirty jobs done. I thought you'd take responsibility. I thought you were a cop, not a lawyer. Either way, I don't pretend to be a governor. That's no Chris Christie, Josh Saban. (laughs) 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 Well, tell me about... I hadn't heard those two things in the same sentence walking dead in Chris Christie. I mean, tell me about Woodbury and 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 Roberts setting the series in what looks like a bucolic Atlanta suburban Georgia town. I think it's outside of Macon somewhere. Yeah. Uh, they they dressed it up and you must, you know, dominate the place during during filming. Uh, but you must have visited the set many times. What'd you think of that season as they focused so much on the way the governor was running this small political ecosystem. You know, you know I thought, um, I think like a lot of fans, and I'm fundamentally a fan, I think, as opposed to architect or creator, quite honestly. Um, but I found um, the governor particularly to be, and by the way, of course he has... He's back. The, he's back. And so Spoiler in, alert. Yeah, and so he in the current season, he's back, and he's, uh, for me, surprising and weird and sort of unpredictable. Love and, and this I week's th- episode. And, he, and, oh he's my a, God. and he's a wonderful actor. Yeah. He just is an exquisite actor, I think. So, you know, he's just a, he, to me, he's a sort of rhapsodic character because his, to me, this is his person. I really speak as a fan. Yeah. I, 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 I we all are. take it as that. But he's so seductive and seemingly so concerned and empathetic 
and he's so deviant and you know and and all sorts of other bad stuff and so it's he's a pretty he's a pretty rich character obviously production budgets make it easier to shoot the film down there uh keep the cost down but what about sort of occupying this particular corner of georgia and becoming part of the community there was a big article about that last year yeah, you know, Josh, I'd actually have to refer you to the people who are closer to it than me. I, I actually, I do know that the wise of were there, but I couldn't speak with authority about what the true community experience is like. So moving moving on to the schedule, yeah. uh, because I can't wait to see the last few episodes of the season, but one episode as I was talking to Georgia earlier that I don't watch enough of, but I'm looking forward to binge on, was I, I was one of the world's biggest fans of David Milch and what he did with Deadwood. So when you premiered Hell on Wheels, I couldn't wait to uh, to really dive in and begin to binge. And that's still on my on my queue because I've got so much else to, to watch yeah. and catch up on. But I want to hear a little bit of uh, this conversation between uh, it, that involves Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah. Northern general, southern soldier working together to unify these United States. It's what the country needs. Hmm. Well, the hell is Cheyenne? I had the Bureau of Land Management rename the town of Durant to Cheyenne. You renamed Durant's town? Yes, sir, I did. <laughs> oh! Does he know yet? No. Can I tell him? Only if you agree to my terms. You were damn good. That's why I won, son. And that is why I will be the next president of the United States. I'm smarter than I look. Are you? Josh Safehan, president and CEO of AMC Networks. You are also a renaissance man in so many ways and the author, among other things, of the big picture America in Panorama. So when they come to pitch to you, let's do Hell on Wheels, let's recreate the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, you as a great fan of American culture and Arcana, does does this hit your heart somewhere close? I I will admit it it does a little bit irresistibly. The the idea of of uh, a story which Helen Wheels is that's set against the backdrop of building the Transcontinental Railroad is is it is I'm not alone yeah. for a lot of people even those who go skin deep that might be me with history just love the notion of something dramatized against that backdrop and a town that moves along with the building of the railroad called Helen Wheels which is its complete own ecosystem of prostitution and belief in god and commerce and politics it's a it's pretty Pretty wonderful story. So disappointed when they when HBO didn't make a fourth season of Deadwood. Yeah, you know, it, it's the vagaries of TV. When you're when you're in love, sometimes with a series and it, it goes away, it seems almost impossible that it could happen. I've had it happen to me. Do you get out? Where do they film that uh, that show? It's Hell actually in, in, in actually in Canada. Yeah. So uh, how's that for being a traitor? Well, it's fine. <laughs> um, then we come, of course, to uh, the show that has been so prominent for you for the last few seasons, ended its run. Vince Gilligan, such a triumph. I want to hear a little bit of uh, one of the all-time great scenes of Breaking Bad. Walt, I've said it before. If you are in danger, we go to the... 
school teacher cancer, desperate for money. Okay, we're done here. Roped into working for, unable to even quit. You told me that yourself, Walt. Jesus, what was I thinking? Walt, please, let's both of us stop trying to justify this whole thing and admit you're in danger. Who are you talking to right now? Who is it you think you see? Do you know how much I make a year? I mean, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. Do you know what would happen if I suddenly decided to stop going into work? A business big enough that it could be listed on the NASDAQ goes belly up. Disappears. It ceases to exist without me. No, you clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I am not in danger, Skyler. I am the danger. A guy opens his door and gets shot, and you think that of me? No. I am the one who knocks. Josh Sapan, thank God that uh, Breaking Bad lives on in Netflix, but what are we going to do without Brian Cranston and, and Walter White going forward? You know, it's. Uh, I think people... I'm going to mourn... Uh, I'm going to mourn... Uh, Jesse Pinkman, Walter White, Tuco, the whole crowd. It's, uh, either mourn them or just place them somewhere like great characters from great stories. And I'll restrain myself from too many literary references, but, you know, uh, Raskolnikov and all these great guys, they, they sit somewhere and you sort of, you can refer back to them. So they don't, they don't, they're not gone forever. You can find them. Vince Gilligan tried hard to find a home for that show and he didn't think that you would probably own up to your offer to give him complete creative control. What happened to the gestation of Breaking Bad that it turned out to be what it was? You know, we were just, we were new to the drama uh, experience with AMC. With AMC, We had done Mad Men and we were, we saw, <clears throat> we read it and thought it was wonderful and we saw the pilot and we were, all I can say is just we were blown away. We were really blown away because I remember distinctly sitting in the room that we sat in when we watched it and, th- and thinking this is more like a great movie than any TV show I've ever seen and this looks like more like an independent film that was unregulated by market forces and true to the picture of the creator Vince Gilligan and Brian Cranston was wonderful and I thought Jesus it's just it's spectacular and it's really unique who knew by the way I will say however who knew that that five years later it would become, or six years later, as big a deal as it did. And for folks of a certain age, me one of them, uh, you get used to crime dramas being based in L.A. or New York. You come up and you start watching The Wire and you say, well, it could happen in Baltimore. But uh, what about the setting of this show in Albuquerque and the mis- and the mystique of the American Southwest has sort of been special for AMC and, and the legacy of this show? You know, uh, I, I'm not a critic, but I can give you my own two cents. Much has been written about the Albuquerque <clears throat> sort of look and how it foots so beautifully with the story and the sort of, to use a fancy word, the sort of ennui of all the uh, vacancy the and, you know, and the strip malls and all that stuff. But it really is just such a, you know, Vince and everyone he worked with made such a, compl- it, it was such a fully realized vision in every way. And, and I do think it's, Infrequent. The Wire is a is a shining example, and there are others. I think The Sopranos was beautifully done, and Boardwalk Empire is beautifully done, yeah. and actually Masters of Sex looks really great. And Low Winter Sun, we'll talk about that. In a yeah, second Low Winter too. Sun is great, but but and so they really are. But and but they're there's sort of a countable number, I think, of TV shows where the place and the picture of the place are 
notably and consciously additive to what the story, who the characters are. And that's probably a, among the, those at the top of the list. And you're going to be working with Vince Gilligan in the future? We sure are, yeah. So Vince is the executive producer of a show that is spun out, so-called in TV, in TV language, that's called Better Call Saul, that for those people who watch is based, uh, Breaking Bad is based on the uh, character called Saul, who's the lawyer played by Bob Odenkirk, the really weird, smarmy dude. And so, yeah, we should have hopefully a lot of good fun with that. So now we come to this very city in which we sit, New York City, but we go back uh, several decades to the 1960s and this incredible show called Mad Men. I want to hear a little bit of, uh, of the show in one of the recent seasons. Technology is a glittering lure. But uh, there's the rare occasion when the public can be engaged on a level beyond flash if they have a sentimental bond with the product. My first job, I was in-house at a fur company with this old pro copywriter, Greek, named Teddy. And Teddy told me the most important idea in advertising is new. Creates an itch. You simply put your product in there as a kind of Calamine lotion. But he also talked about a deeper bond with the product. Nostalgia. It's delicate, but potent. Josh Safehan, I feel John Hamm like making love to me through the, through the <laughs> headphone right now. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is such... Don't, tr- don't trust it. I think I'd give you a caution. Don't trust it. Well, that's isn't that the political pitch, though? I mean, couldn't that have been given to Eugene McCarthy or George McGovern, that pitch? To, you can beat Nixon. Nostalgia. It's delicate. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's it, you know, the uh, it's it's interesting to, uh, it's funny you responded that way, Josh, because listening to it so carefully, I always watch it with pictures and listen to it. And hearing it, hearing it without the pictures makes the intention seem actually clearer to me. The hustle seems clearer than when it's embodied for some reason by John Hamm. And it actually gives, as I listen to it, it gives greater credit to Matt Weiner, the creator and producer and often writer, because the, 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 the words, I don't mean to be gushing here in yeah. response, but I think the words are so exquisite. And his character in those words is so complete and in a certain sense, at this point, having watched them, you can be conscious because you know what the pattern is. But it really is sort of just brilliant writing and brilliant I mean, conception. I mean, to Matt Wiener's credit, just the figuring out of the prop of the carousel brings all of your viewers back to the 60s and 70s when that's how families shared their images, right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, Absolutely. was that the way it was in the safe hand residence? You know, uh, we were a little technologically limited. So if we had that, we no one could probably use it in our household. I, I was considered the technologically advanced one because I could use a screwdriver. So I don't know that anyone could operate a slide projector in my household. But, but there's familiarity in general because my father was a copywriter. So th- there's that part of it that I know really well. Political overtones are woven into every single episode of Mad Men. I want to hear a little bit of an interview that Jake Tapper did with uh, Matthew Weiner in the beginning or promoting of this current season. Let's hear that. One of your characters is a political operative, Henry Francis. Ready? Are you ready? And and, uh, he's worked for moderate Republicans in New York. John Lindsay, the mayor, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor. He made a comment about George Romney in that episode. 
Henry Francis, well, tell Jim his honor's not going to Michigan. Because Romney's a clown, and I don't want him standing next to him. It actually makes perfect sense that somebody who worked for uh, Nelson Rockefeller or John Lindsay would say that about George Romney. Yeah. That makes sense. But George Romney is the father of Mitt Romney. Yeah. Mitt Romney's son, Tag Romney, as you probably saw, was not happy about the mention. And he, and he wrote on Twitter, yeah. seriously, liberal media? <laughs> By the way, you're now a member of the liberal media. I don't know if you know I, that. I, I, I heard conservatives love the show, so I'm not mocking say my, my dead, <laughs> mocking my dead grandpa. I mean, he was he was offended. Yeah, I mean, did that? No, uh, I don't know what to tell you. You know, was uh, it a dig, Mitt Romney it, at all, or, or no? Honestly, I was looking at the election. First of all, there's not one moderate Republican who should not be thrilled at the archaeology I have done on the Republican Party <laughs> in this show. There's a whole bunch of very interested, fair-minded, non-prejudiced economically interested um, do-gooders that disappeared from the Republican Party, and I basically brought their names up. And they kind Josh Sapan, do you have to ride your show your showrunners closely to make sure they don't go over any political bounds that shall not be uh, crossed? Because now you are a member of the liberal media. Yeah, the, well, they actually operate with incredible autonomy, and we are immensely to the credit. That, that's just the way it really operates. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so... So we live at their effect, and uh, and we're the outlet, and we'll take the good, the bad, and the indifferent. Yeah. Uh, do you think Matt was able to Matthew was able to create more awareness based on sort of all the political touch points he created in last season? The connection, maybe, with the Romney of 1968 to the Romney of 2012. I, I thought what he did. I thought what he said was really true. I thought that specifically what he said was true, which was it was a pretty wonderful portrayal of of. Uh, of Republicans of that time, and um, and I think the connections were great. I think they've been great throughout the show. They've actually been, they've been pretty. I don't know what you think, but they seem to me to be pretty delicate. Sometimes very evident, but delicate nonetheless, because they don't stand up and say, "Let's think about this," not in the context of the story. They say, "Let's think about this in the context of the story." Have you seen dailies to the new season? What do they look like? I have not. So, all right. So the last show that I want to touch on is is a, a new one that I've not seen yet, uh, but that holds great promise to me as a huge fan of The Wire. It's when you take a production and you put it in a, a place that has received so much uh, journalist, journalistic coverage for what ails this city and what can be done to fix it up. I'm talking about Low Winter Sun uh, made on location in Detroit. Let's hear a little clip. Detroit's one of those places that the people who live here are fiercely proud of it and they have such a love-hate relationship with it. We're shooting most of it on location, so whatever Detroit is will certainly be a big feature of this show. Detroit really represents the soul of our main character who wants a chance of redemption and the city is just like that. Well, I had to get my Detroit on, obviously, in order to prepare for the role, because it's such a big feature of this show. Frank Agnew, like, why does he stay in the city? Why, why does he care so much about it? It's deeply embedded in him. Anytime you have a great city, a great American city, like Detroit, like New York, like Chicago, like New Orleans, it becomes a character. Detroit is an extraordinary, incredible city. There's a Motown and everything else. There's a different rhythm in Detroit. There's a different flavor about Detroit. There's a beauty to the city that is amazing. The more you get to know it, the more you see it. And yet it's also sort of a broken beauty. Josh Sapan, you think about greenlighting a show like Low Winter Sun, and obviously the producers come in and say, and we're going to do this all in Detroit. What yeah. do you as the network chief think about that? 
You know, it was it was uh, pitched and it was portrayed by actually our, our own people with a real sensitivity to how much Detroit could be a character in the story. And, and actually there was a tone reel that was done before the show was shot, which was sort of a montage of the world of Detroit today that was really well put together and was sort of perfectly evocative of everything that was said in that little clip of decay and, and disappointment and <clears throat> and uh, diminution and then sort of hope and ambition. And it, and the tone reel was, was spot on. The tone reel was like a commercial for if you could embody all that was true of Detroit today with its past and its legacy and you could put in a TV show and wrap it all into that soul, this is what it would look like and feel like. And so, yeah, it was a big consideration. It was very cool. Now, what things are going to look like and feel like will take a very different turn with turn. We'll go back to Yorktown, Valley Forge, Lexington and Concord, Bunker Hill. Tell us about this new show you have in development. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, we're, we're doing it now. It's called Turn, and it's a Revolutionary War, American Revolution story, and it's about uh, a spy for the... Uh, for what would be the United States. And its spy stories are great stories, I think. And obviously... It's like America in the 80s that's been <laughs> successful. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so this guy's a spy, and it's set against the backdrop of the Revolutionary War. So, you know, the, all the things that you said about the vagaries of sort of who's on first and who's right when you were referring to The Walking Dead, of bad within good and political ecosystems and things being imperfect are actually, I hope, portrayed, going to be portrayed very well in turn. It seems to be in the script and it seems to be in the pilot. When will we see it? Sometime in 2014, a date not yet set. Can't wait for that. Yeah, thank you. You know, the most, one of the most fascinating things I learned about you just as I was doing a little more reading uh, is not only the, the great drama that you put on the tube, but the things that you, that occupy your time outside of your world as uh, president and CEO of AMC Networks. And there's a little piece in the design section of the New York Times a few weeks ago about your collection of uh, group photographs, these panoramas. And I said, Sepan and I must be twin sons of different mothers. Cause I just, I go to like the Brimfield Antique Show really? and I go to these things and I say, I, I just try and look at every face in those Is pictures. That right? Is that right? Yeah. Tell so, us about that. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I'm, so we're not alone, uh, Josh. Uh, <clears throat> we're not alone. A lot of people like, if, if you're listening to this, these very wide so-called panoramic photographs of big groups of people, you often see them in, for sports teams or political groups or special interest groups. And so, like you, I just got attracted to them many years ago and began to collect them and put them up on my wall until my wife thought that our home looked too bleak and miserable. Like Brimfield. These, your home was like Brimfield. Like Brimfield with all these people staring out black and white, painfully faced without any apparent affect, all in uniform around something. So uh, I put them away. But I always wanted to do a book because I thought that they might portray sort of the country in my and great ambition. You know, if you organize them properly and if you sort of organize them around subject and perhaps via timeline. So I had it in my... Uh, go, sort of desire to do for a very, very long time. And eventually it got done. So now it's a now it's a book. Big picture, America in panorama. I mean, I, I, I'm always drawn to these hospital staff pictures, right? Because yeah. you see, you just look in the eyes of all these 
young men, young white men. They always are, and uh, and but they they betray different walks of life and they're different heights, different builds. Yeah, but then yeah. they're all sort of in in the in the service of Hippocratic Oath in whatever hospital they happen to be serving. Yeah, there's there's some great ones that I got really attracted to. Some of the more extreme ones that that not only tell a personal story when you look into their eyes, but they tell a sort of social or political story. There's an early NAACP one, and there's an early Ku Klux Klan one with everyone standing up very proudly. And uh, so there's a whole sort of a little story of a section of American history. Now, at the beginning of our conversation, we noted that uh, the company that you run, AMC Networks, uh, earned $395 million in revenue in the third quarter. I can't imagine a lot of that was contributed to by the theater you have in the North Fork of uh, Long Island. That's a separate enterprise. It's <laughs> personally owned, and that's a loser. <laughs> Tell us, I mean, for all that you are sharing with the Globe and with, with Cello Media, your your content is going to get even broader. But for, you know, 25, 30 kids on a rainy Saturday <laughs> afternoon who want to see a movie... They've got an old-time theater, beautiful old-time theater, thanks to Josh Sapan. What's, what, well, why did you do that? You're sweet to bring it up. It was uh, near the place that I go on weekends. There's a town called Greenport, Long Island, and there was a there is a beautiful theater there that was built in 1939 by an architect who made beautiful theaters, and it was there, and it <clears throat> ended up becoming for sale. So I was able to purchase it and, and uh, renovate it and keep it open, and uh, it's only open, actually, unfortunately, during the summer season, it's it's summer, but it 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 for me it sort of has the uh, cinema paradiso quality of the magic of movies. The projectors are not yet digital; they're among, I guess, some of the last in the United States. So you actually hear the sprockets go, and you watch the light flash backwards, and you see the thing come on, and the movie rolls. And it's it's you know for me it's pretty romantic, and I had the good fortune of being able to to. Uh, to enjoy the tax laws, <laughs> I've been there. I've experienced it. It's a great, uh, it's a great afternoon experience. Josh Sapan, President and CEO of AMC Networks, from entertaining uh, millions with Breaking Bad, Mad Men, uh, uh, and and so many other shows that you have. To twenty kids on a rainy Saturday afternoon. Thanks so much for everything that you bring to our our world. Oh, thanks so much, Josh. Thanks for having me. So as we said at the top of the show, it is the culmination of a great week for Polyoptics. Several months' worth of work with my old pal Steve Silverman, uh, recreating, bringing back to life 25 years ago the epic ride uh, of Michael Dukakis, governor of Massachusetts, aboard an M1A1 Abrams main battle tank, Sterling Heights, Michigan, September 13, 1988. Steve, uh... What'd you think of the project now that it's all done, Josh? It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. It uh, working with you has been great, um, but it was wonderful to go back 25 years to a time when we were both much younger, uh, doing the exciting work of Advance and traveling around the country and creating these images and, and these events, uh, and to reconnect with a, a range of people. I was amazed how many people were very happy to talk to us and. Uh, give their memories of that, you know, the weeks and days leading up to that event and the days and weeks that came out of it. It was a very special experience. It was nice to be reconnected and uh, so far so good. I think the first thing that we did was we started to read as many news stories as we could contemporaneous to the tank ride and you and I looked at the list of potential players involved and we sort of apportioned out those names. I took some to try and track down and talk to. You took some to try and track down and talk to. Tell us about... uh, one particular person at, that was really not known as a part of the story that you that you came in contact with, uh, who at the time worked for General Dynamics. 
Well, there's there's two folks. Uh, the 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 one was Don Gilliland, and he was great to 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 track down. He was a columnist in Florida, and he was the PR guy there uh, at the time. Uh, and then Gordon England, who uh, was it's been a great pleasure to get to know Gordon. Uh, he was the guy in the tank, uh, and he's had a wonderful history and career. Um, but to get to know Gordon and uh, and Don has been very special. They came at it from a a whole different perspective. Uh, it was fascinating when you look at it, the two, uh, and they both make this point, the, the different perspectives. Uh, the Dukakis world was looking for a, a good photo op and a, and a way to reinforce the, the defense message. And I think it was very important to Don and to have a chance to show off this beautiful tank and the national media coming there was a good thing for sale. So it's uh, interesting to come at it from several different perspectives. At the time, Gordon England was vice president of engineering of General Dynamics Land Systems. Uh, he had an amazing career that even followed that, and he was also involved in early space program work. Uh, but after General Dynamics uh, worked uh, in, I think, the end of the Clinton administration and throughout the Bush administration in several roles, including, uh, I think, two terms as Secretary of the Navy. And Secretary England joins us to recap a little bit today. Secretary, how are you, sir? I'm good, Josh. Good afternoon. Steve, how are you both today? Doing very well. Thanks for being here. Good. Nice being with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, sir, thank you for being so open and sharing of the story and helping us understand this a little bit better. You've, I gather you've seen sort of the the uptick of interest in this over the week. I don't know if people have come up to you and say, uh, hey, Gordon, uh, well, actually, what's been the feedback that you've heard since we brought your name back into this? Well, I've gotten a number of emails from friends because, of course, a lot of people I know still vividly remember the uh, tank episode and they know I was associated with this. So as people read your article, which was very well done, so congratulations on excellent article. You know, they've uh, sent me the article. I've received the article from probably 15 or 20 sources now to make sure I didn't miss it myself. Uh, so, you know, people have, uh, you know, gotten back in touch with me, uh, you know, as a consequence of the article that you published. Tell, tell us, uh, Gordon, you were uh, very reluctant over the years and very respectful uh, of that whole experience, and you really didn't talk about it much in public for, for 25 years. Uh, what, what made you change your mind, and, uh, and how has it been to be able to tell the story finally? Well, Steve, I had thought over the years, particularly after it became this iconic image, I had thought, well, one day there are experiences I had that may be of interest to other people, and I thought, gee, one day I'll publish an article or something. On the other hand, while I thought it would be of interest to people, I was reluctant to just publish an article about my experiences, because frankly, I didn't want to embarrass anyone. I didn't, I'm really not a professional writer. I didn't want to take it out of context. So while I thought about it, I kept putting it off. And then when you approached me about doing it in the context of the uh, entire campaign, uh, the Dukakis campaign, I felt, okay, that gives a little different perspective, a little bit different background. It can be handled, I think, much more professionally by professionals like yourself as opposed to myself. So. I wanted to make sure that however I was involved, uh, you know, it was in a positive sense and, uh, you know, treated the people appropriately who were involved because I certainly didn't want to bring any embarrassment to anyone uh, as a consequence of, uh, 
what was a very well-meaning day, and I think it, it was actually handled extraordinarily well that day, but of course, as time went on, it became, you know, this uh, presidential image, uh, which was not flattering, and so, you know, I really was reluctant to discuss it after the fact. Well, you've uh, you've handled that whole part very well, and, and really respectfully of all the characters and people involved. When they first came to you, and I think it was your boss who may have raised it with you, the the first time, what what was uh, what was your reaction like, and, and what made you finally decide to go, to go ahead and, and do the actual event? Well, of course you're right that you know Don Gillen. You mentioned Don; he was the PR person. He was first approached about uh, you know this possibility, and of course I I think he originally it was to go to the tank plant, which was in Warren. But of course, you can't have political events at a at a federal facility, so. Uh, it was shifted to the engineering facility, actually the main offices, but also we had large engineering facilities. We actually had a test track in Sterling Heights at that facility. We had a lot of tanks, maybe 10, 15 tanks being modified at any given time. So it turned out that was the venue that could be used. And Bob Truxell, the general manager, he brought it to my attention, asked if I would handle this. I guess I actually had a choice in the matter, although obviously when he asked, I was more than willing to do it. I mean, this is potential president of the United States coming to visit your plan. And, uh, you know, that's obviously a pretty positive event. So we viewed it as very positive. I was an opportunity to uh, show off our facility, our people, uh, our, our tank, which was frankly, a relatively new tank at the time, relatively new production was still uh, going on with the tank. So it was good exposure for everyone, and frankly, it sounded like it'd be a fun, interesting day. So, you know, enthusiastically, uh, we embraced the idea. And the Abrams was, uh, you know, being built, a lot of Abrams were being built, a good, strong Defense Department budget. But there was also Star Wars uh, uh, as a policy matter. How did you guys think a little bit about where your role was vis-a-vis the other uh, military options that the government had or was considering at the time? Well, we were doing an upgrade of the tank. I went to Michigan as vice president engineering from Fort Worth, so my background was electronics for airplanes, so, you know, very advanced electronics for fighter airplanes. I was moved by the Corporation of Michigan to uh, bring... Uh, that kind of technology to ground combat vehicles, specifically the Abrams, but also related uh, vehicles. So we were in a major, uh, we were in the middle of a major upgrade of the Abrams tank, and it was uh, to revolutionize literally ground warfare. It was while we were doing that that the term the digital battlefield was actually uh, came about. Turned out one night over a couple glasses of wine, we talked about the digital battlefield and it stuck. And frankly, it, it was sort of the foundation for a lot of the changes that the Army eventually went through and is still going through in terms of, you know, the digital world of combat. And so still going on, still evolving. But that was that was the kernel for the United States Army at that time. So, so we were very, uh, frankly, very proud of what we were doing. Uh, pleased to be able to do it, and uh, and we enjoyed what we were doing it at uh, General Dynamics Land Systems. Well, it was a it was a, a fascinating time, um, and and as you uh, began to realize that the the campaign wanted to ride in the tank and have the governor ride in the tank, uh, what went through your mind, and how did you kind of prepare for that? 
Well, uh, first of all, we had to decide what we were going to do because we knew it was a photo op, and the uh, governor definitely wanted to be in the tank. Tank definitely wanted to be moving. Uh, the advanced people, which I'd met with a number of times, but frankly, I don't remember names, but uh, your article actually covered it well. Uh, they definitely wanted action shots of the, gov- of the governor in the tank, so we literally laid out a test uh, track, that is, you know, a route that the tank would take and uh, where the National Press Corps would be and what the whole day events would be, et cetera. And, um, and they definitely wanted, the advance team definitely wanted the uh, governor to be seen in the tank. And so it's rather interesting if you look at most of the pictures, most of the photos and most of the video, you do see the governor. You do not see me because deliberately uh, we lowered the seat that you, we were standing on on my side of the tank. I'm actually maybe an inch or two taller than the governor. But, it, but we lowered it on my side so it would be about the governor, not about somebody else. Actually, afterwards on the Johnny Carson show, one night Johnny Carson said, you know, there was actually somebody else in that tank. Um, you know, so my role was to be out of sight, uh, and so this would feature the governor. And so the whole event that day was set up for a good photo op for the governor. And by the way, it was a good photo op. I mean, it worked out perfectly in terms of of the photo op. It didn't work out in terms of obviously the governor wearing the uh, the Abrams helmet. And and to that question, uh, Gordon, I had a Dickens of a time along with Steve to try and figure out exactly how the helmet made its way onto Governor Dukakis's head. And as I listened to first Matt Bennett and then you. You understand that when you are on a 67-ton vehicle that is moving along at 40 miles per hour, number one, uh, you don't want to be up there unprotected uh, should any anything untoward happen. Number two, if you've got Gordon England trying to explain what this vehicle can do, the only way you're going to hear is if you are connected via a, a intercom device, which is enabled by the helmet. And... Yet there were a lot of folks that I talked to that suggested can we they didn't want to have a helmet for the for the tank ride. How did you deal with the questions of both safety and communications, but on the other hand, what might have been the desire of some to have a a helmet free ride? So here I think probably Matt and I may disagree some reading the article, um, but. You know, I mean, this is 25 years ago, so neither one of us maybe remembers everything. And my recollection is uh, the advance team, uh, frankly, did not want uh, the governor to wear a helmet. And he could have actually been in the tank without a helmet. It was not required to wear a helmet. It was required to wear uh, the coveralls with the straps so that if anything happened, you could be extracted from the tank. That said, I don't know of anyone who ever rode in a tank without a helmet, but, but I don't, also don't believe there was such a regulation, but there was one on the coveralls themselves. But as you commented, uh, Josh, uh, there is a safety issue because the tank, and the tank's actually about 90 tons, and uh, when it 
operates, I mean, in particular when it stops and starts, it's not like a car. I mean, it tends to have a jerky motion. You can be thrown around right in front, as you'll recall from the photographs. There's actually a, a gun mount and a gun mounted there. Um, and so if you were thrown forward or back, uh, first of all, you could be injured. Uh, secondly, you could have a mark that could stay there for a long time. Uh, but also the communications, and not just with me, but while there was one Secret Service agent in the tank, actually, they wanted to be able to communicate if they thought there was any reason that you had to communicate with the governor. I think people wanted to communicate with him. So I think prudently, you do want to wear a helmet in a tank as you comment it for safety purposes and also for communication. And... You know, you're talking about a presidential candidate, that actually becomes a pretty significant uh, factor. I frankly felt strongly he should wear the helmet. Um, but I'm sure if the governor or if his team has said, no, we're not wearing a helmet, we still would have, we still want to ride in a tank, I'm sure we would have accommodated that. But my view is you either wear the helmet or else you don't ride in a tank, frankly. I really think that was sort of the, the decision. Well, and, and that makes a, a lot of sense. What a, what a recollection. Um, and so uh, let's just bring you back to the, uh, the event uh, is wrapping up. Uh, you hop out of the tank uh, with the governor. Uh, you walk with him a little bit. Uh, do, you, do you remember how you felt? And, and then, you know, what was the reaction of uh, General Dynamics as, uh, as the motorcade sort of pulls away? Uh, sort of a two-parter there. Well, first of all, I, I thought it was a very good day. The governor was a very nice person. He was very personable. He was very interested uh, in the tank itself. I think the whole surroundings were very positive. It was, of course, a union plant. We're in Michigan at the time, probably even stronger uh, unionized than today. And our workforce was genuinely um you know, enthralled to have uh, Governor Dukakis visit the plant, so he was warmly received. And it was a very positive, warm day, uh, not warm in terms of temperature, but, you know, warm in terms of personal feelings. And so I I frankly had a very pleasant day uh, with uh, Governor Dukakis. I believe he had a very pleasant day. I think he enjoyed the tank ride. It was exhilarating that everybody gets to ride in an M1 Abrams tank. So I think it was exhilarating for him. Uh, it was for us. And uh, and we enjoyed our time together. So I think afterwards, uh, he was very thankful and uh, appreciative, and, uh, and I enjoyed it. And I think when the motorcade left, we felt like we had accomplished what, what our objective was. That is, provide the ride in the tank, make it safe for everybody, give opportunities for the National Press Corps, uh, have our employees involved. Uh, so it was all very positive. I mean, there were no accidents. There were no incidents. I think everybody felt like the day went flawlessly. And so we felt very good about having had the opportunity to uh, spend the day with potentially the next president of the United States and, frankly, to show off our tank and, uh, and, our, and our people who built the tank. 
And Gordon England, as we mentioned at the beginning of our segment with you, uh, your stop at in Sterling Heights, Michigan, as Vice President of Engineering at General Dynamics Land Systems was by no means the uh, the height of your career because you went on to great public service in your turns as Secretary of the Navy. I want to hear one moment uh, during your service as Secretary and get you to reflect both on that moment and where the Navy is today. It stands out from this first commissioning was the fact that I was th thought that the San Jack was by far the biggest ship uh, or anything else I'd ever seen. At 660 feet long and 120 feet high, it cut an impressive figure to be sure. But next to this ship, it really cannot compare. Almost twice as long with a 4.5 acre landing field, a tower that exceeds up to 20 stories above the waterline, and a feature that a few of my grand granddaughters in particular would really like. That's right, on board this carrier, there are mind-boggling 1,400 telephones. <laughs> for all of the special enhancements this carrier has received, however, for all of the state-of-the-art technology and the safety, the environmental features, the most important element will finally be added today in the form of the men and women who will serve aboard this floating naval air station. Secretary of the Navy Gordon England, you were there that day. Reflect on that scene and, and where you think the Navy is headed now and into the future. Well, of course, that was, I guess, the commissioning of the George H.W. Bush aircraft carrier, and uh, which was uh, obviously a very positive day for the Navy and for uh, the United States Navy. And the Navy just recently, a couple days ago, I believe, commissioned the uh, Gerald Ford uh, named after President Ford, and that's the new aircraft carrier for the Navy. So I think the Navy has, well, I, I don't think, I know the Navy uh, has done extraordinarily uh, good service for the country in terms of uh, projecting power forward, which is vitally important uh, in this day and age, and also protecting sea lanes, because about 90% of all commerce and all trade in the world is is across the oceans, and so that's been very peaceful, uh, even though we've had some pirate attacks, et cetera, by and large. Uh, that goes very, very well safely every day, so thanks to the Navy, but also projecting power around the world, the ability to quell things before they become issues. And so uh, the Navy has a very important role in the uh, world today in terms of uh, stability. And by the way, my view is that uh, security and economic development are two sides of the same coin. So you actually have to have stability. Or, or as you know, money can move around the world at literally the click of a button these days. Any sign of instability, money moves. So stability... Uh, is very important. Security, stability is very important for economic development. So Navy plays a key role. And of course, budget issues, uh, you know, that is an issue now, although frankly, I believe budgets can be reduced some uh, because, of course, they were built up a lot during the last 10 years. Um, but I believe at the, I believe it, when all the deliberations are over, people will, our power, political, uh, People in Washington understand how important the Navy is to the health and well-being, uh, both of all our, our people and also our economic system. So I'm, I'm confident they'll continue to get the funding they need. 
Uh, Gordon, ironic in a way that <clears throat> you were presiding uh, at that christening in the administration of uh, President George W. Bush, uh, the naming of the aircraft carrier uh, in honor of his father, President George H.W. Bush, the man who prevailed in the 1988 election. Was there chatter with the new president about uh, the fact that you were present at sort of both major events uh, in his in the Bush family history? Well, actually, I did mention it to the president. I'm not sure if President Bush 43 knows that. Uh, that's the president I serve with, so I'm not sure President Bush 43. President Bush 41 uh, I mentioned that too. Um, I don't know if that's something that just sort of stayed with him or not, uh, because we never went into, you know, all of my role. I just told him I was a fellow in the tank with Dukakis during the election. Of course, you know, he remembered, uh, you know, the tank because I became part of the campaign. But of course, he wasn't involved in any of that at that time. Right. I mean, obviously, it became part of the campaign, but just a part of the campaign for that specific point in time. So, uh, yes, President Bush 41 was aware of that. How deep we have registered, I'm not quite sure. Well, Gordon England, uh, former secretary of the Navy uh, and such a storied career in uh, the American defense and space industry and a guy who really uh, has been a, a great help to Steve Silverman and myself as we tried to uh, connect the dots and recreate the story from September 13, 1988. Thank you so much both for your service and for your uh, openness and candor as you've tried to retell that tale for our benefit. Greatly appreciated. So you're welcome, and it's been my uh, pleasure, uh, Steve, and I uh, thank you for all your courtesies, and Josh, uh, also for yours. And again, congratulations. I thought you did a very excellent job on the article, and I enjoyed it. I learned a lot from it, so it was very interesting, and I thank you for your good work. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you very much, sir. So as promised at the top of the program, we have a great kicker for this week's episode. The editor of Politico magazine, Susan Glasser, the person who has brought to life in such a short period of time, this amazing feat of journalism uh, now under the banner of Politico. Uh, Susan Glasser, the former editor of Foreign Policy, uh, also at the Washington Post, had uh, her husband, Peter Baker, on the show last week talking about Days of Fire. This week, we're talking about this great new creation, Politico magazine. Congratulations, Susan, on the magazine's launch. Uh, well, thank you so much. I'm so delighted to have you uh, as a marquee contributor. Um, how how is week one gone? I'm I got to tell you I'm just floored by. I thought I was sort of in this little bubble of isolation with Denise Wills. Like, how many articles could they possibly be doing? You guys have put forth an amazing amount of content in seven days. <laughs> it's hard to believe we've only been publishing for a week, but we're really aiming to show people that this is going to be a daily magazine uh, as well as. Uh, a unique six times a year print publication. And so very important for us uh, to try to have a, a great rollout and to show people in the first week the range of the different kinds of stories and ambition that we had journalistically. So we had your wonderful Dukakis in the Tank piece, a historical narrative that also went along with Politico's first ever mini documentary uh, with photo essays. We've had uh, a big reported piece today uh, first big on-the-ground piece by a national reporter f uh, from the Wyoming Senate race that's basically breaking apart the Cheney family uh, was another one of our big p 
pieces this week trying to show kind of the, the diversity of the different kinds of stories that we'll be doing in this magazine as it, as it goes forward. Susan, you don't have the biggest staff in the world, and yet you've put forward so much in seven days. Are you going to keep up this pace, or was this just sort of a, <laughs> a preview to show people what you're capable of? <laughs> well, sometimes you need to create your own uh, momentum, Josh, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. But I do think we aim to have uh, a pretty robust and interesting mix of pieces every day for people to look at on Politico magazine online so that, you know, we might have one big cover story every day and then four or five uh, other interesting, smart, timely things for you to read. So we're not, we're not looking to unleash a flood of new content. I recognize that people are already drowning uh, in too much stuff to read. So we're looking for things that kind of break through the clutter, either because of their timeliness or the power of their ideas or the urgency of their reporting. The uh, the history department had its second installment uh, in, later in the week with uh, Todd Purdom and the story of Bobby Baker and the ribald days of the United States Senate and and Todd took an interesting tack. He was basically annotating an oral history from Bobby Baker and then you guys published about a hundred and twenty five page oral history that he gave. That's sort of breaking new ground for the way a magazine puts out content, isn't it? Well, absolutely, and I think that's part of. Uh, what I'm excited about with this project is that there are so many different genres to explore, and, and the web, of course, is such a great platform for publishing uh, a variety of different kinds of materials. So here's this great video documentary, but Todd Purdom stumbled across this, this incredible oral history uh, conducted by the Senate historian. It was so explosive, so salacious, they chose not to put it online as they normally do with all of their oral histories, and it really, it shows the Senate in the era of JFK and LBJ uh, at its sort of shocking worst, and there's there's bribery and payoffs and drinking during the day and carousing and sex scandals, and Bobby Baker was, you know, he was the man who knew it all, so uh, we thought that the oral history, just with some smart editing and annotations, really spoke for itself, uh, and uh so far, history is doing quite well on Politico magazine. Yeah, I can see by the number of retweets and uh, and Facebook postings. But, you know, let's not sugarcoat it because we're on radio. Todd's annotation was an oral history about oral sex in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a good point. Uh, it was an oral history of, of, of that, among other things. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Senate, you know, uh, we, we celebrate the good old days right now in some ways uh, when you look at the gridlock and the uh, sort of breakdown of... Uh, discipline on the Hill right now, but the truth is the good old days uh, were never as good government as one likes to think that they were. And this is this this oral history was a reminder of that. And from a business perspective, you sit back and look at the first full week of Political Magazine with Jim Vandehei and John Harris, whatever metrics you use, uh, what kind of things have shown you things that are working, things that still need some work? Well, you know, it'll be it'll be interesting to see over time, but I, I do think we feel like we, we had uh, a terrific first week in terms of the rollout. It, there is a big audience, and, and that it's a sort of vindication of the theory of the case, which is that there's, there's a big audience for these kind of stories and that uh, it complements rather than competing with uh, the stories and the audience that Politico already has. Um, so these are... 
you know, by stepping out of the news cycle and around it, Politico had lots of news coverage, for example, of the feud between Liz Cheney and her sister Mary over the issue of gay marriage earlier in the week when, when this sort of Facebook war broke out between the two sisters. And yet we were still able to come back with what is one of today's most read pieces in Politico, which is this 4,000-word, really terrific, in-depth piece with exclusive reporting that Jason Zengerly did for Politico magazine. So I think that's a good example of how the two things can work together and complement each other. And in addition to some of the history department stuff that we've been talking about that is uh, such a delightful and and breezy read in many ways, my piece and and Todd's piece uh, can be a lot of fun at a certain time of day, but you also hit some other very hard stuff, and the editor's sort of a player coach in many ways because you came out this week with an a exclusive interview with Secretary of State John Kerry. I want to hear a little bit of uh, the secretary from recent comments he made uh, about Syria and then have you tell us about your contribution to the magazine this week. Now, I believe that, uh, that uh, the aftermath of the Iraq experience and Afghanistan leave a lot of people saying we don't want to... Uh, you know, see our young people coming back in a body bag and so forth. But that's not what we're talking about. And what we have to do is make clear to people that this is, we're not talking about war. We're not going to war. We will not have people at risk in that way. We will be able to hold Bashar Assad accountable without uh, engaging in troops on the ground or any other prolonged kind of effort in a very limited, very targeted, very short-term effort that degrades his capacity to deliver chemical weapons. So, Susan Glasser, that Without was... assuming responsibility for Syria's civil war. That is exactly what we're talking about doing. Unbelievably small, limited kind of effort. Unbelievably small, limited kind of effort, Susan Glasser. <laughs> that was Secretary Kerry from a few months ago uh, as Syria was was uh, becoming so dominant in the headlines. You sat down with him. Uh, how's he adapting to this role, and what did you find as it, putting your old reporter's hat on and your foreign policy reporter's hat on? Well, you know, I, I think that clip you played is a very interesting one because you can really feel and hear the tension and the frustration is palpable in Kerry's voice. Uh, the interview I had with him this week was very interesting as well because uh, he, he is very defensive. He, he understands uh, that on Syria, as well as on a number of other issues, uh, he is coming under a lot of criticism. There's the prospect, in a very positive sense, the United States might be on the brink of a nuclear deal with Iran that would at least be the first steps towards a long-term deal. Uh, they're talking about a six-month, basically, freeze in order to see if we could negotiate a long-term uh, rolling back of that program. That would be a major diplomatic accomplishment for Kerry and for Barack Obama. It hasn't happened yet, and of course if it did, it would also mean, I think, an enormous political controversy back here in Washington with our allies in Israel and Saudi Arabia who are very suspicious of the Iranians. But right now, John Kerry is feeling the heat, and so my conversation with him was very interesting because uh, he is desperate to make the case for a diplomacy that hasn't yet produced the results that would make the case for the diplomacy. And I think, you know, there's a sense of frustration rising. Syria, uh, as in the clip that you played, is, is perhaps the most 
painful and poignant issue. You're talking about a civil war where more than 100,000 people have died. Well, the United States and its partners have basically done very little, in all honesty. And, uh, you know, that's going to be a part of their record now. And just as we're talking about President Clinton's actions in the Balkans and in Rwanda during his presidency, and could he have done more sooner to stop the killing, uh, there's just no question that we're going to be examining Barack Obama's record and his administration's record on Syria uh, for a long time to come. And Kerry has been an advocate of trying to do more. As he said to me, you know, do you just think we should sit on our rear end? Uh, you know, you can't just sit around and do nothing. Uh, but the problem is the results have been nothing, even if they have tried to do things. And uh, I think that's where you're really going to see this is, is on, on the balance sheet of Obama and his foreign policy. Uh, they're not necessarily going to come out too well. But they're placing a lot of bets on this on this Iran negotiations. And, and it's a big breakthrough even to be to this point in the talks. Remember, for 34 years, we've been getting to know uh, with the Iranians. So uh, we'll see what happens in Geneva. So the person who is occupying uh, the corner office at Foggy Bottom is not Susan Rice. It's not some. It's not a deputy taking over. It's someone who lost the presidential race in 2004, who has long been seen as a leader of the Democratic Party and a party elder and a person who whose promise was in many ways not fulfilled until he uh, was able to be tapped by President Obama for this role. Is there a sort of urgency, unique urgency from this particular Secretary of State versus someone who was more of a, you know, moving up from the deputy slot or more of a policy wonk who he thinks time is short and he, for his own career and his own legacy, has a lot to prove? Well, I think you just summed it up very well, better than I did, Josh. Uh, John Kerry, this is his last stop, and he knows it, and he uh, is is focused on making some sort of a, a legacy play here. And I think that does explain uh, a lot of his very active traveling. He's He's been on the plane uh, like 100,000 miles more than Hillary Clinton at this point in her uh, secretaryship. So you know, he's really making a play for something to happen. That's why he's focused on the Middle East peace talks, even though very few people, including the people involved in the talks, think there's real prospects for a breakthrough. He still put that back on the agenda in the hopes, even if it's a low percentage play, of accomplishing something major there. Hey, Susan, since when did secretaries of state do these dueling, I've flown more miles than you've flown uh, kind of contests? I don't remember it being such a big thing between Warren Christopher and Madeleine Albright. No, I think that's right. I think this comes out of the last few years. And, um, you know, there was a lot of attention. So it was a criticism of Colin Powell that he didn't uh, really, wasn't a very active secretary of state. And so I think probably when the Condoleezza Rice came in, there was a focus on sort of metrics and showing how active she was. And so really it's it's been the last several that you've seen a sort of competitive, like Clinton, Hillary Clinton couldn't rack up more miles, so then her people were uh, eager to get her the record for the most countries visited. <laughs> uh, and they were. They they definitely, by the end of Hillary Clinton's tenure, were, were making special stops in, you know, small little countries for an hour or two in order to um, rack up the number of countries. So Susan Glasser, the player coach, editor of Politico magazine, you have your Friday cover coming out tomorrow. I hope it's Dukakis in the tank. I'll put my dibs in now. <laughs> uh, but what should we look at for uh, in coming days and weeks? 
Uh, well, first of all, just a quick note on the Friday covers. I love the Dukakis and Take. We're definitely going to be featuring that. Our goal with the Friday covers is to release a new uh, cover oh. each Friday uh, with a cover story on them uh, in order to make it clear to people we're not just remixing and slicing and dicing the week's best, but that this will be a terrific way, almost a weekly edition of the magazine and a really smart way to read the best of our week's content, which uh, certainly the, the Dukakis and the Tank thing is something that any magazine in the country, even one that had been publishing for a lot longer than one week, would have been proud to have published. And I think it will have a long life of people coming to it. In the coming weeks, we'll be experimenting with even more genres. And if you or any of your listeners are sitting on any more explosive secret histories uh, of Washington, by all means, please send them our way. Okay, Susan Glasser, editor of Politico Magazine, a boffo rollout week. Happy to have played a very small part and uh, really grateful for the opportunity you gave Steve and me. Oh, thank you so much, and congratulations to both of you. It, it, it just couldn't be a more fascinating story told well. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Susan. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.